Welcome to this episode of Laughing Without Liquor, a woman's guide to living it up without the booze. Join your long-term recovery hosts, Lane Kennedy and Tamar Medford, as they have insightful conversations with others on an alcohol-free journey. We're glad you're here. Now let's dive into this episode. Laughing Without Liquor, the content presented on the Laughing Without Liquor website and podcast is for informational purpose only and not intended to diagnose or treat disease. Before making any changes to your nutrition or supplementation, please make sure to check with your physician or healthcare provider. Laughing Without Liquor podcast is for general information purpose only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including or giving medical advice, and no doctor patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition that they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare profession. So we're just letting you know that we're here sharing our experience, and we want you to take your health serious. So that's our disclaimer. Enjoy the show. Sometimes I even get the spray on my glasses. I'm ready to roll. I'm hanging out with my friend Tamar Medford. And I'm hanging out with my friend Lane Kennedy. We're hanging out with you. Thanks for being here and thanks for listening. We have a special guest today, Tamar. (laughs) We do. And I am so excited because she is a fellow sober curator. Yeah, she is. And you are in for a treat today, my friend listener. So uh, Dr. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Lane and Tamar. It's so great to be here. I'm very excited. We haven't really talked at length and I've kind of been around you, but this is terrific. Really great. Thanks for having me. (laughs) We're going to start the show with our tabletop gratitude. Are we ready? Oh, yes. Ready. And for our listener, here we go. Let us know. (laughs) Send us an email. When did someone go out of their way to help you? This is an easy one. That's a great question. Um, I have several. I'm going to start. Go. You You start. Dr. Sarah. All right. I'm going to think about it. (laughs) So I have several that have happened in the last 24 hours. Uh, so I, uh, got food poisoning on Monday and I've been terribly ill, terribly ill, violently sick. And at the same time, my website went down. So my hosting went out and I had no website and I had a presentation to do yesterday. And I had like, there was things that I was like, my website cannot be down. And I reached out to a friend and he helped me. Immediately. It took him a whole day to deal with the hosting Tamar. You know, Tamar tried to help me. So that's okay. So first I had Tamar trying to help me. Uh, then he automatically got him and his team. He has an agency that works with websites and does this. And he just, it literally took him and his team to get it up to Mark. Can you believe that? That's how messed up it was. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first, that was the first, uh, little help that I received. And then the second is that another sober curator, uh, we just had a lovely conversation with her for our book that's coming out in October. And 
that was just delightful because we are collecting stories around the subject matter of sobriety. And she was so generous with her time. And I just am so grateful that people want to show up for me, that people want to say, hey, I'm interested in helping you. And that I have enough bandwidth to say, oh, somebody can help me. Or mm-hmm. I have the bandwidth to say, I need help. I need can help. somebody help me? Yeah. Yeah. Those are my yeah, two. Because that, Those are good. that is hard. I found that in the beginning too. I was like, well, I don't want to ask for help. I'm an adult. I mean, pff, come on now. And I can think of two examples that were very significant for me. And the most recent was actually... Um, a couple of years ago, I had gone through something very difficult with an ex of mine and my current partner had basically kind of dropped everything to support me in this. And we were new, like we were only together for about, I think, four months at the time. And she's like, you know, come stay with us. Um, you know, I was on the verge of bankruptcy mm. I because I couldn't work because of the circumstance at the time. And, you know, also Lane. Lane was there for me that whole time. Like not Mm -hmm. only was my partner, but Lane would call me, how are you doing? She also had to deal with some other things in that. And that was so significant to me because it's like when things happen, life happens. And when I'm in crisis, I have a solid foundation. Mm -hmm. And then of course, getting sober. I mean, I hired a personal trainer who happened to be in recovery. I had no idea at the time. And I was so desperate to change. And she eventually had noticed that, okay, this girl, I think she has a bit of a problem here and had the courage to say, Hey, you know, sometimes when I have to cancel, I'm in recovery. If you ever want to join me. And I, I laughed at first, but when I, it, she had planted the seeds. So then when that moment came that I realized like something had to give, I made that call and my life has been drastically changed as a result of someone putting themselves out there and doing something for me. And I'll never forget those, those times. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, God, the stuff about sobriety is huge. People just helping me along the way. I mean, you know, I mean, being on this show, you know, one of the most challenging times in my recovery was when I was married and my husband relapsed and my life blew apart. And I just think about, you know, I had gotten away from, I had gotten kind of isolated by then because I was home. I had a full-time practice. I was married. I had a child and I kind of let go of some of my supports. And I just remember after that happened, the amount of people that kind of rallied around to help me, people I hadn't seen for a while in recovery. I started kind of hanging out with a new group of people. I had just moved to another town and just the love and understanding that I got from really strangers at the time during a time of crisis was really amazing. So, yeah, I mean, that is something I think when you talk about going through really challenging times and people stepping up to the plate, it's it's amazing. I mean, at a day to day basis, my son is helping me with my computer relentlessly. <laughs> <So> <laughs> meme okay i'm the meme did you ever see the meme of um oh who is it amy schumer and her mother in therapy and they've got the computer and it's all about how often the mother has to ask amy for help with her computer that is me so um i do appreciate my son and his brilliance with a computer uh outside of that outside of the previous trauma (laughs) yeah i'm grateful to him constantly that's awesome um 
Okay, so so much to unpack today. Um, you focus on codependency, which I think our listeners can, can probably relate to. I know personally that I have struggled with codependency throughout my whole life, and but I didn't realize that it was codependent behavior right. until my sponsor actually said, Tamar, how about we sit down, sit down and go through, I think it was codependency no more. Right. Um, I was like, well, I don't need that. Right. <laughs> but right. when I got into it. So why don't we start off like what, you know, first of all, you're 40 years sober. Right. Which congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, can you just kind of share briefly, like, you know, what did that look like and how did you get into the field that you're in now? Yeah. I mean, God, it's so weird thinking about recovery because I am coming up on this 40 year anniversary on Tuesday and it's so bizarre in a way because I just think it's just life, right? I mean, I got sober when I was 24 and, um, you know, I was a Coke addict and an alcoholic and, and obviously codependency was running rampant relationship problems, basically. And, um, so when I got sober, I kind of had, you know, different jobs for a while. And then I just decided to go back to school and eventually, you know, went to school and graduate school and decided to get into the field of addiction. But that's how it all began. But I think with the codependency focus, I think over the years, and you guys, I'm sure have known this too. We know plenty of people that maybe have gotten sober, but continue to struggle ongoingly with relationships. And that just seemed a pattern with all my clients, with myself, with friends in the program. It just seemed like it was a big trigger for people to relapse. And it was a big arena in which that caused people a lot of pain. And so when I, when my, actually, I was telling you about when my husband relapsed, but Starting about 25 years ago, I started to go to Al-Anon. Someone said, geez, you know, you work with addicts, your friends are addicts, you're married to an addict. Maybe you should go to <laughs> maybe you should go to Al-Anon. I grew up in addiction. So I started kind of the codependency recovery journey then and all those books you're talking about, Codependent No More, and you know, all the adult children books and um Jonathan Bradshaw and Claudia Black and all those people back from the 80s. But um, to me, I, re- I wrote the book because I really wanted to expand the definition from the classic old paradigm of just, you know, in the old days, it was the housewife married to the male alcoholic. And for me, it, I want to take it out of that to, to most people, especially women. I mean, we're pretty much brought up to be codependent. And I agree with you that a lot of people I know, it's so funny because I just went to my dentist office recently and brought them a bunch of books. And when I came back a couple of weeks later, they were like, well, I didn't even know this was a thing. Like so many people don't even recognize that they're kind of participating in these behaviors, but they don't know it's called codependency. And to me, simply, I define it as the inability to be your true self. I mean, basically it's an adaptation where I'm focused on how someone's going to respond to me to feel okay, 
rather than I'm just going to be who I want to be and let go of how people are going to respond to me or react. But most of us, whether we're addicts or not, to me are driven by those early fears that develop when we're really young, like fear of people getting upset or fear of not being liked or not being loved or what other people think of us or, you know, rejection or all those early fears happening from like even those first five years. And then we project those onto basically all our future relationships. And so how do we then get the courage and even the awareness that we're not really being who we are when we're in relationships. And I think when I thought about the years of being a psychologist and I say in the book, you know, if all of my patients could A, speak up and B, set boundaries, I wouldn't have a job. And that to me is all codependent fallout, right? I can't speak up because I'm afraid and I can't set a boundary because I'm afraid. So, oh God, I just went on a, a rant, but that's really the, was the source of why I got into this. You said something really interesting, Sarah, in that, you know, it's, it's like we grow up in this, it's a patriarchal society, right? Women, we grow up this way yep. and it's, we, we don't, it takes time. You know, by the time we're 40, we're like thinking, Ooh, something's not quite right here. Right. right. Like maybe I should start thinking a little bit differently. By the time we're 50, we're like, oh, the world should be mine. Right. Then you get into right. your 60s. I can't speak for the 60s yet, but the women and the friends right. that I have who are 60 are like, the world is mine. Forget it. Right. When you're in your 70s, you're like, heck yeah. Right. <laughs> like there's, but that first, I want to say the first 40 years is this struggle with the self, this, this yep. internal like I want to be different, but I don't know how I've used drugs and alcohol, or I've used people I've used shopping. I've used something to fill me up. And right. by the time you're in that like latter stage of your life, you're like, okay, I got to do something different. Do you think that, I, do you think there's a class that we could teach? <laughs> like, you know, we could start kids <laughs> well, there's off. Absolutely a class. I mean, I do a group on zoom, but yeah, I mean, for younger, I, I for totally, younger people, for younger yeah, people, totally you know, like in their twenties. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I, I talk about this in a really simple way because I think a lot of clinicians really intellectualize it and complicate it. And I really just see it as, you know, we're born, we develop within a family and due to all of our interactions or things that happen, we develop these adaptations, these ways we want to function. So say we learn to keep quiet or say we learn to manipulate or say we learn to avoid or uh, say we learn to talk too much or whatever. I mean, it's all basically there are ways to get our needs met without being able to ask for our needs to be met. So a lot of it, and like you're talking about with women, so much of it is the acquiescing. You know, I grew up with four brothers and believe me, I was, I didn't even know what patriarchy was until I got to college and, and started to learn about it. And I was like, oh my God, I was silenced in my family, you know, but I didn't even recognize it. 
I just knew the boys were more important than I was. That's all. It was just part of the paradigm. And I just knew I was the one that got up and did the dishes or I was the one, you know, it was just, I didn't even know that I was acquiescing to other people. Which totally sucks. I mean, totally, totally sucks. Yeah. I guess I, the way I view it, the way I view it now is trying to not interpret, interpret it in a good or bad, right or wrong way. It's to say, that's what happened. And I do think, and I talk about anger a lot in codependency, because I do think a lot of people who've acquiesced for years become really enraged and resentful. And I think that really gets in the way. Um, because I think then the anger is projected or the way I'm handling my anger is projected. And that doesn't really get us what we need either. So you're right. It's really recognizing what are the things I'm doing now out of fear that are not, you know, getting me what I need in relationships. Simply, simply said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all kind of have different behaviors, codependent ways we've been and I think they're all developed, you know, early on. And I say this all the time, you know, they were brilliant when you were a kid, you were adapting, you know, you were trying to feel safe. I mean, literally all of our adaptations are ways to try to feel safe, but they, they no longer work. So it's figuring out, geez, how can I start to speak up and even identify what we need? Like you guys were talking about early on in the recording about, um, God, now I lost my train of thought. Oh, about asking for help. I mean, so many people, you know, struggle with that early on, especially if you've been the helper for so long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. And and I, I love how you mentioned earlier about the relapse, right? That a lot of people who don't recognize it, because I mean, I grew up in a family where my mother was a stay-at-home mom. My dad worked all the time. My mom had all the stereotypical cooking the meals, doing the laundry, taking care of everything in the home. And I actually did the opposite, right? I was like, screw this. I am not going to be the one that cooks dinner for my family every day. Everybody can do their own thing. And I actually went the complete opposite way and learned to be a little bit more independent as a result. But... When, you know, getting into my 40s and starting to recognize behaviors, like you said, in relationships where the fear of rejection, the fear of being alone um, started to really become apparent. When I actually started looking at, I know in in Codependency No More, they talk about all like your beliefs, um, all that kind of stuff. And looking through all those, I'm like, oh, wow, I have a lot of these things. Like there's oftentimes that... I will try and control things at home. So they're the way that I want them to be, but I will project that onto my partner. I can recognize that now as a result, but I really didn't think I was codependent until I started really digging into it. And I notice it in other people who will say, I'm not codependent. Like I don't, I don't have any of that, but it's, there's so much to it. I think that that's why I love that you mention relapse in there is that, when we start to create these issues in relationships repeatedly, right? right? And I know many people also in recovery who go from relationship to relationship to relationship, right? I'm a serial monogamist myself, um, but 
then you see relapse, right? Because you're not learning how to be more effective in your communicating, how to let go of that control, how to compromise, how to work together. So I love the fact, you know, we're laughing without liquor. And I think working on these kind of things, like we talk about DNA on the show, right? We talk about wellness, all sorts of things, but we won't be able to actually laugh like authentically without alcohol unless we start to work on these kind of things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Control is a huge thing. And it's interesting because just last week in my group, the topic was control. And I sent out a bunch of questions. And the thing is, a lot of people also don't think they're controlling. They're like, well, I'm not a controlling person, but you can control in a bunch of different ways. You can control by being passive. You can control by giving someone the silent treatment. It's not just someone who's kind of angry and controlling. Um, there's lots of ways you can be manipulative. You can make someone feel guilty. You know, there's lots of ways people can try to get control in a relationship. So, which really it's looking at what is the fear that started that behavior in the first place? You know, what, you know, what's the fear about what happened? When did it happen? Um, so that's a lot of the work we do. Codependency and parenting, like I was actually going to write a article for the Sober Curator because that to me is a huge, huge topic um, in the sense of a lot of parents, I think, and I get kind of wound up about this, have a really hard time just letting their kids, if they have a hard time tolerating their kids just having the human experience and experiencing their feelings because of their own stuff. And um, so that's a whole other episode, but yeah. Because that, that's, this is such a, this is such an, this is so, this is a sensitive topic for many of our listeners who are parents. And I believe that the millennials are very, they're wired differently. You know, the, again, I look at the generational, like what's happened. And what I've noticed is that the millennials parent differently than the Xers and the boomers, a hundred percent. Interesting. Uh, and they're very wrapped up in their kids. Yes. They're very, um, involved, right. Whereas with the Xers and the boomers, there was the restriction and limitations and, right. uh, like it was very strict. It was very yes. different time. And yes. so I think this, the, this codependency thing with, you know, parents, it's, it's what generation Yeah. and looking at who, who's, Who's parenting? Yes. So to well, put a blanket a statement example. out there. Is- right. I mean, this is an example I'll say so uh, of what I'm talking about. Like a friend of my son's mom, he she was way over-involved, I felt, with her kids. Just like really had a hard time letting them go out and do their thing. Now the son went to college and I met with her for coffee. She was struggling with some stuff. And she told me that she still calls her son to wake him up at college. Now that's a codependent behavior. That's out of her own fear that her son isn't going to be successful freshman year. So that's an extreme example. But, but to me, it's not a letting that him suffer his own consequences and learn for himself. So that's kind of where I see, I agree, the over-functioning and not just letting the kid have his experience and have some failures. You know, it's the classic, 
parents I would see where they're, you know, doing the projects for their five-year-old. So the five-year-old looks good in kindergarten rather than letting the kid do the project, you know? So that's kind of what I'm talking about. The extreme, like you were saying, Lane, of the over-involvement. And I would say it still comes from a fear. It comes from a fear of what others are going to think, whether it's because everybody's posting on Instagram or, you know, the birthday party phenomenon. I mean, just think of the birthday party phenomenon. Um, I mean, there's so much of it. Yeah, so much to talk about with parenting. But I just don't think the over-involvement, to me, it says more about the parents rather than the kids. And I always say parenting is about the parents. You know, parents will say, oh, my 100%. kid made me do well. Anyways, go ahead. We probably are on the same page. I'm on a rant. Go ahead. I just brought this up in a class that I was teaching um, on Wednesday where I said, you know, everything stems from fear. And my students were like, what? Oh, and so with you. I said, well, when we're, when we're living mindfully, fear kind of takes the back seat. And I taught from this place. And when I look at parenting, a lot of my students are parents. It's how can you step back from that moment of fear? How can you let go of that moment and, and just be there with your child? And they yes. are, like you said, completely wrapped up thinking, projecting into the future yep. about some made up story or fantasizing yes. about the past, right? So yes. When I'm teaching in my mindfulness, it's about how can I stay present with my kid right now? It's, yes. it's very, it's, parents are, it's, it's tricky because they want to be there, right? And then, you know, if your kid is neurodivergent, that's the other subject. Right. Yeah, especially when you have three of them. <laughs> <laughs> and when your kid is and neurodivergent, so parents, you right? want to, you want to, when your kid's neurodivergent, there is this you know, I want to take care of them. There is a strong sense of, I want to make sure that I'm advocating from them for yep. them. And then there's, you know, being bold enough to separate, but a lot of parents can't do that. They have to yes. get help to do that. Yes. It's well, unfortunate. And I think Lane, you bring up a good point, right? It's the help. I think, especially now coming into a partnership where my partner has three girls, all of them neurodivergent, right? They all FAS. Um, so we're born, you know, basically out of addiction. Right. And now watching the two teenagers going down the path that they're going down and trying not to step in, but almost needing to step in enough. We're not afraid today, though, to go and say, okay, we need help. Like we have hired a therapist specifically, and I think those of us who live in long-term recovery, I feel like this is how we, not necessarily therapy, but how we get through these really hard life issues is yes. A, we have community. We're not afraid to ask for help. And we'll sit in our therapy sessions and say, oh my God, this is what's going on right now. We don't know what to do about it because we know that, you know, I grew up with boomers as parents, I'm yeah. Gen X. And it was like, you know, you don't come home, you don't have a place to live. Yeah. And they weren't afraid to put up those boundaries. So when things got really bad, that we had these harsh consequences. But of course, when you have kids who are neurodivergent, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners who have dealt with addiction, you know, substance use disorder, 
they probably can relate to a lot of this stuff that it is a little bit different, right? So I think the most important thing is though, saying I don't need to do this alone, I can ask for help. Yes. Like I don't, I don't have to do this by myself and try and either redo what my parents did. Cause if I did that, Absolutely. I mean, the teenagers would be out. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh God. I'm so with you. Yes, absolutely. I mean, parenting, I mean, I always say this to me, and I only had one child. I thought it was the hardest job in the world to do well. Hardest job in the world. So I have compassion for anybody that has a child. Anybody that has more than one, just totally, you're my, like, really. <laughs> um, because I, it, I just found it so challenging. And also, I just think it brings up, and maybe because I'm a psychologist, I had that awareness of my own stuff chronically getting activated, you know? And I guess that's what I would, when Lane just said about the fear, it's like taking it even another step further. It's the fear of something in my history. It's not even about the interaction with the child. It's something that's coming up for me. You know, I often, I said to someone when my kid was in high school, like going through high school with my son was more painful for me than it was for him because that those were some of the hardest years of mine. And it was so easy to project onto him what I think he's feeling when really it was about me. So, I mean, having that distinction, you know, there's that theory about when your child is going through something at a particular age, you're going through the same, your own trauma or whatever can get activated. And I really believe that. And if parents have that awareness, I just think it's so helpful because then you're not taking it everything personally. I mean, that's the other thing about parenting. None of it is personal. None of the stuff they're doing is personal. It's like to have that detachment so you can make choices that are, you know, the best choices as a parent. But that I know it's a whole other lot to talk about there. Yeah. I mean, the boundary thing, I will say that when you talk about the teenagers, you know, I've seen parents with, you know, that are just overwhelmed. You know, their kids are two or three or four. And I get that. But if your kid is running the show then, and I will say this to them because a mom will get sober and, you know, maybe hasn't set a boundary with her kid for a while. That's a pretty common theme. And I say, if you don't figure it out now, you are going to be a prisoner when they're 16. And that happens all the time. You know, a client will come in and say, I just can't, you know, I can't deal with them. And their kids are running the show and they're 15 and they're 16 years old and they're intimidating the crap out of them because they couldn't set a boundary when they were three and four and five. And now they're trying to, and their kids are like not taking them seriously. So that's another huge topic with parenting. And again, like you said, it's not, you know, there's that, I don't know who wrote that book about the authoritarian, the authoritative, and then the passive, all these styles of parenting. And it's really the middle ground. You know, our parents were maybe the authoritarian, and then there's the maybe certain generations are more passive. And it's being in the middle, but it's hard to figure that out all the time. You know, what is the best response? One of the things that I actually wanted to ask is that you've worked with addicts for quite a long time you decided to get into this industry and a lot of people who get sober 
they end up going into this industry. Um, and also some of them end up burning out. But like from your experience, what are some of the misconceptions that people come in with about living a sober lifestyle? Because, uh, you know, we talk about it a lot on the show that, you know, people, I thought it, I'm like, what am I going to do when I right. get sober? Like life is right. going to be boring. It's going to be no fun. I'm not right. going to, you know, what, what do you hear out there for people who come and see you? Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I had the same experience. It's so funny because I remember being in treatment and um, these people came in to give us a talk or something about sobriety. And I literally, and I'm not kidding, I did this. I raised my hand. I said, were there any questions? And I said, what are you supposed to do on July 4th? On July 4th? <laughs> like, I had no clue that, like, I couldn't imagine, like, going through a July 4th without being wasted. And so, yeah, I mean, people do have this perception. A lot of people say to me, but all my friends drink. And I often wonder, well, how many of your friends have drinking problems, which is another question. But, you know, I thought the same thing, like, oh, my God, I'm not going to have fun. I'm not going to. And literally, not much has changed. I mean... Do I mean, it depends, you know, I mean, it's been a long time. I'm sure I did things in my 20s that I'm not going to do now, but I definitely still had tons of fun, still had a lot of friends. I mean, all that changed was I wasn't feeling tons of shame every, every morning waking up. I mean, you know, so I think people have this perception about being sobriety, being a certain way. And all it means is you're just not doing a, you know, putting toxins in your body. It's crazy because I, I've been, I talked to Elise about this, that I'm so, because I've been in my practice and just recently kind of let that go. I haven't really been online and kind of seen all these different people now, like all the sober coaches and like, like people get a year of sobriety and they're starting communities. And I mean, again, I, it's just, a, it's like the Wild West to me. You know, I just met with um, my old boss who, McLean Hospital is a big hospital, psych hospital here. And she said, it's just the addiction field has gotten so just, there's so many options. And on one hand, it's great. You know, there's so many options for recovery, which is great. And yet on the other hand, you don't know kind of what experience someone has, you know, as far as going to someone for help. I don't know how you guys feel. You're probably much more in tune with all that. I'm just recently discovering it all. I mean, it's really, I had no idea there were so many options. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole dry January and sober October and all these other ways people are getting sober. So, I mean, I guess they're great. Um, and at the same time, I think um, I also take addiction really seriously. So I don't know. I'm trying to kind of find a, a, a happy medium I, there. I think, yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, fortunately, I've been on online since like 2000 or no, nine, I don't even know. Oh, so you're way adapter. more in touch with stuff. Yeah. I, I, I've been online for the last 25 years, at least Jeez. maybe even longer. And yes, it's been interesting to watch really the growth happened, uh, exponentially when the pandemic hit, thank oh, God, God, you know, and thank God for, 
uh, that kind of explosion. Because I, I also think that with that explosion is the, you know, destigmatization. Right. <laughs> destigmatizing it. There, there we go. Destigmatizing uh, addiction. And, you know, people can find all these pathways to find their own recovery. Yes. And not one way is going to be right. You know, yep. again, I look at these, the younger generations and it's like, you know, they're finding recovery using MDMA. Okay. If that works for them, that's yep. what's working for them. Yeah. Like I don't have an answer. I don't have a solution. I know it's worked for me. And even the longer that I'm sober, it's like, well, what, what, you know, again, I go, then I go to like the neuroscience and actually how my brain operates and how my genes operate and what my body is like, what I can get addicted to, how, you know, my dopamine receptors are working, you know, what are the options? What is my playing field? Where can I go? Right. Because it's really Got just it. this mental illness, right? Like it's my mental illness that I have to think about every day. It's not for me, it's not about drinking. It's about where's the mental illness going to get triggered? How am I going to take care of that? Got it. Right. So is that, um, you know, I'm all about self-optimization. So is that going to be L-theanine? I take a supplement for that, right? To help <clears throat> support that part of my brain where other people are like, no, 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 no. You can't take that. You can't take anything that's going to alter you. And it's like, well, you know what? I, I can. I, and I do like nicotine is another one. Yeah, right. I'm not smoking cigarettes, but I can take nicotine to in, improve in my cognition, right? Where it's like, everybody Got has it. to find their sobriety and what works for them. And this kind of old, yes. like it's gotta be this way. A it's, it's right? freaking old and outdated, you know, it, it, it's hurtful, right? It's, you know, it's really dangerous. But I will go back to, you know, the year, you know, people who get a year sober and they have these big communities and then they think, oh, I can be a sober coach. It's like they don't have the experience of 40 years of watching somebody recovery, somebody recover and watching them and not one person. I'm saying them as plural, like you've watched people right. recover for 40 years. So you have some history where that is wisdom that the one-year-old, five-year-old, 10-year-old is not going to have to support people right. getting sober. So it's like, how do we explain that to people who are just getting sober? Right. Like, how do we build right. relationships? Again, it's a question. How do, how do women like you and I build relationships with these one and five-year-old, you know, superstar, air quoting, sober coaches who think they know anything, know everything, right? They're like, I know everything but they, but they don't. And how cool would it be if we could join forces with them and build a alliance, right? An allegiance, a, a community to make a greater impact. I just don't know if they're there yet, Sarah. Right. Right. I know. Well, it's, that was a you know, it's, Sorry. no, no, but I, <laughs> you know what? I mean, I ranted to Elise recently about all this because it's so new to me. I mean, God bless you for being aware of it for 25 years. It is. It's, I mean, it goes back to some of the codependent stuff. Like I can't control what someone else is going to think or feel or do. I can control my response to it. And I guess sometimes I'm surprised because like, I can't give this stuff away. You know what I mean? Like I'll reach out to someone and I'll say, Hey, I have this experience that I'd love to talk to you about, blah, blah, blah. And I got this, I got this email recently from someone 
who said, oh, you know, we don't have any sober coaches or um, basically I think he was saying we don't have any professionals on our show because we don't know what, you know, what kind of efficacy or basically, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I do have 40 years of sobriety and 30 years of being a practicing psychologist with addiction. I mean, I do know something. Do you know what I mean? But, and I don't know who he was, but it just is that, you know, I guess I think back when I was, I mean, I thought I knew everything at 60 days of recovery. So, I mean, I can't, you know what I mean? I mean, the older yeah, I, I think get, that's where, go ahead. No, yeah. I was just thinking that's where the humility comes in, right? That's where the humility comes in for me. Because we are, again, we're super open. We're super open. And we, again, there's no uh, competition in the recovery field, right? We're dying or living and that's it. And so, uh, you know, reaching out to her was this experience of like, no, we're not, I'm not interested in collaborating. It was like, wow, what a missed opportunity. I mean, it was brilliant for me to just kind of watch and be like, okay, and and watch my thinking around it and how I reacted and experienced it. And then right, just right. allow her to be, because she ultimately, she's helping her community, which that's what I right. want to happen. When I right. sit back and just say, okay, wait a minute, perspective here. But I do, like my other side of me is like, that's such a, such a bummer. It's like, not that I want to be in front of her people right. and that tomorrow and I should be in front of her people. It's about learning from wisdom, 40 years of wisdom that you have, right? Right. It's right. Right. The younger, younger people right. just, they, they're not there yet. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Absolutely. And, you know, I just want to add to that with, you know, I, I, I mean, I've seen people after 60 days become sober coaches and, mm-hmm. I know for myself, when I first came into sobriety, when I started to actually think, okay, maybe I want this for myself, you tend to idolize people, right? right? And codependency, of course, comes in there too. But I think that it's so dangerous that I'm all for giving back. I'm all for service work, but you can't give what you haven't got. And it's, it's, you know, it's sad and scary to watch people go out. Like I want people to help each other, but then you start to build these communities of people. And if you don't have a community around these new people, people are going to drop like flies, you know, like there's a lot of other groups that I've went into just to check it out, to see what they're like. And, you know, there's always people saying, I'm just coming back. I relapsed, I relapsed, I relapsed. And it's about a staying sober right? There's like, it's, I mean, to get sober and to put down the drink was one thing, but it's staying sober. That was the hardest part. So when somebody comes into this sober coaching space and builds a big community, all eyes are on them. What happens when they relapse? Well, guess what? They did it. So it's okay. Now it's a part of recovery. And I do believe that relapse can be a part of somebody's recovery. And there should be absolutely no shame on that because it does happen. It's the reality, right? Life happens. People relapse. Right. But I think that we have to change the language around that kind of stuff is because I, by the, you know, my higher power have not relapsed yet. Right. I say right. that because it could happen at any moment, yep. but it's because I also don't say that relapse is a part of 
my journey because it doesn't have to be right like how about we just say yes relapse can be a part of recovery but it doesn't have to be right and i think like you guys though if you've been around long enough oh i'm getting choked up you've been around long enough the fact is you've seen plenty of people die i mean i mean my second husband you know i divorced him and he was dead two years later do you know what i mean it's like because that's addiction at its finest And that was someone who had a company when I met him, was very successful, 15 years sober. You know, the next thing you know, has a surgery. The next thing you know, the opiates come in. And the next thing you know, I'm divorcing him. And two years later, he's living at a shelter. I mean, that's addiction. Now, that's not everybody with addiction, but I've seen enough people die or go out there and don't come back that yeah i mean relapse can be part of your recovery but also people can die i mean i had a client who i never forget this at mclean when i was being trained at mclean hospital and they have a lot of famous people coming through there and there's this author and i got called in the psychiatrist that was training me had me sit in on a couple session and in the session when we were trying to talk to the guy, his wife kept interrupting and saying, oh, he's not that bad. He's, you know, kind of defending him and, you know, talk about the co-crazy. And like a year later, I remember seeing a book that had just come out and it was um, published posthumously and he had died. He had fallen. Like the whole idea of like the other thing about, oh, well, if they just stay home and don't drive and some people fall and crack their heads open on their coffee tables, just because you're not going out of your house does not mean you're safe. If you put booze in your mouth, all bets are off. Life or death. I mean, I've had clients find their kids almost dead from alcohol poisoning. And if they haven't found them, like at that last minute, and rushed him to the hospital, that's it. And that's an 18 year old. So, I mean, I don't wanna be dramatic, but I also know this illness kills people every day. And and it's, you know, I don't know. I'm on a rant now. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I hope people are helping other people and maybe they just haven't been around long enough to know that it's really serious. I don't know, I mean, I got excited and went back to school and, you know, got a degree and did all that. But I think now because of the internet, it's so easy to just like, you know, oh, I'll start an Instagram channel on my sobriety or whatever. I mean, I'm not even on Instagram, so I don't know, but you know what I'm saying. Anyways. All right, Dr. Sarah, we're going to wrap up. You've been so generous with your time. We're going to wrap up with things they don't teach you in school. Here's our question. You ready, Tamar? I'm ready. Is it true that the higher the level of education you have, the less likely you are to be unfaithful? No. I think that's false. Dr. Sarah? Dr. Sarah? I would say false, too. The higher level winner, of winner, education, you're no, be- people who have higher education <laughs> level and higher incomes are more likely to be unfaithful than people who right. are less yeah, successful. That's- Boom, chakalaka. Yeah. 
crazy. Loyalty right here. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Boom, boom, boom. Winner, winner. All right, my friends. uh, Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, Make sure that you check out the book. It is alive and available over on Amazon, Laughing Without Liquor. It's our first book ready to roll out. I hope that you'll grab a copy. And right now it's only 99 cents. 99 cents, Tamar. Mm -hmm. So crazy. Doesn't get better than that. Oh my goodness. Dr. Sarah, where can our listener come and find you and follow up with you if they want your support? Uh, geez. Well, there's uh, leaving crazy town, which is on YouTube. And it's a show with my buddy, Finn, uh, where we talk all things codependency and we try to have a sense of humor, like you guys about it. And then I have a website, Dr. Sarah Misho, um, where there's a bunch of podcasts and stuff. And then Sober Curator, I'm doing some articles uh, on the Sober Curator magazine, which is really good. So I'm doing more of that. So that's where people can find me. Amazing. Thank you so much for hanging out. Thank you so much, you guys. It's been fun. Thanks, Dr. Sarah, for being here. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Laughing Without Liquor. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Living in recovery can be a blast, and we're glad you're laughing without the liquor with us. We hope you'll join us again in the next episode. Until then, take care.